Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. So hello there and welcome back to a brand new episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast, the show where we talk all of the latest news, gossip and events in the world of Formula 1 and we relay that back to you for your listening or viewing pleasure, depending of course on which platform you choose to follow us on. And guys, just want to wish you all a happy Valentine's period wherever you are around the world, if you are celebrating it of course, and uh, whilst love is very much in the air, One love that we can all agree and share is our passion for Formula One and F1 very much seems like it's on the horizon, that it's coming back to us very, very soon and the launch of the new cars are already taking place. And in this episode, we are going to be discussing the first five launches that we have seen so far, including one key area of weakness that we feel each team at least needs to address to have a better 2022. And those teams, of course, are Haas, Red Bull, Aston Martin, McLaren and Alfa Tauri. We will of course be doing the remaining five teams in Williams, Ferrari, Mercedes, Alpine and Alfa Romeo in a part two episode next week. And of course we're going to be discussing a few little news snippets that we have been seeing doing the rounds this week as well. Joining me on this episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast is my co-host Lee Wallington joining us. Lee, first of all, how are you doing and uh, how was your Valentine's period? Did you uh, get up to much with the missus? Did you have a good time? Uh, well, first off, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, I do hope you're all good as well. And and yeah, the Valentine's period, a nice bit of fun. Um, going out to buy a tweet somewhere nice and enjoyed our day, really. Unfortunately, still had to work, but yeah, what can you do? Yeah, it's always the way, isn't it? Um, but then, I, I don't know, sometimes a Valentine's Day evening meal with the uh, other half isn't a bad idea during the week. I no. think on a weekend it just comes absolutely hectic and it's trying to book this or book that it's just an absolute nightmare but it was nice um it went to a nice tapas place in uh, brixton so yeah very very nice indeed um yeah but let's get on with this uh, episode and i think the first thing i wanted to talk about was the news earlier this week where the fia had their meeting with the world's motorsport council including heads from some of the leading f1 teams most notably christian horner at red bull and toto wolf at mercedes that we saw on the pictures on Sky Sports and on social media as well, making their way to the London headquarters with the FIA president, Mohammed Ben Salayam. And um, I guess we, as fans, we were kind of hoping that we might be able to hear uh, a formal update in terms of their findings of this investigation into the, you know, the, the aftermath of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and obviously what went down in those crucial four or five laps, which led to the controversy that we all saw around the world, resulting in Lewis Hamilton effectively being robbed of a record eighth world title in favour of Max Verstappen, who was able to capitalise on the situation and win his first Drivers' Championship. Now, at the centre of this controversy, Lee, 
we've been going on and on and on about the role of Michael Massey as the race director. Was it still a tenable position for him? What did the future look like for the FIA in terms of the structure of the Grand Prix rules as they exist in Formula One? Are they still fit for purpose? And I think a lot of people probably agreed from this fallout that they perhaps weren't fit for purpose or weren't written in a way that was clear and concise for fans to fully understand and agree. Not that the FIA did themselves any favours in making that point quite apparently clear, unfortunately. Um, You know, (laughs) PR is PR, but uh, there's always a way to go about it. Unfortunately, it seems from the conclusion of this uh, meeting that we didn't get a formal press release from the FIA in terms of um, an outline into what their investigation had brought up so far and also the updated structure changes that we were hoping for as as, as much as we got was uh, from Mohammed bin Salim himself was basically saying that he would publicly uh, publicly present the news of the structural changes and action plan in the coming days um, but overall he said it was a good meeting and that they went through a lot of important things uh, for the season ahead and as I said, he just said he's still ongoing. He said discussions were good. Now, on the surface, that sounds okay, I suppose, you know, taking it for what it is. But I, I, myself and a lot of F1 fans, Lee, I was quite disappointed that we've kind of been at this now for the best part of a month and a half, I think is probably fair to say. I don't expect much to have been done over the Christmas period, but it doesn't seem like we're any closer to getting not necessarily a solution going forward, but also you know, an understanding as to the FIA's independent, I suppose, review of what happened at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix last season? No, not at all. It's, uh, you know, bureaucracy, they like to uh, take their time to do things by the book and review things and peer review things and make suggestions and have discussions and have meetings. So I'm sure that all went on within, within the FIA. Um and that the clogs are slowly moving in action. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, well, I mean, not me personally, but there is a lot of pressure on the FIA to get this right. And in a way, I'm kind of glad that when we saw Toto Wolf and Christian Horner in particular turn up to the headquarters, at least from what we can gather, they are very much both, well, not so much maybe uh, Christian Horner, but from a Mercedes perspective, they do seem to be quite involved in overseeing this process and make sure that this fact-finding mission is done, um, you know, with the utmost integrity, but also with the aim of trying to preserve the integrity of the sport going forward, which was very much compromised following the outcome of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and obviously how all that controversy transpired. At this point, do you think it's it's critical the, or do you think the FIA are not taking this seriously enough? Do you feel that perhaps this is one of those sort of tactics, as you mentioned earlier, um, about you know bureaucracy taking its time, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that perhaps they feel that they're still underestimating the significance of making sure that whatever future changes that are being proposed following the aftermath of this report are making sure that the integrity of the sport is at the centre of it? Uh, Before I go into that, I do want to say that in a previous episode, I did mention that I don't expect any outcome just based on the FA's previous actions in other, um, not obviously similar things because it's never happened before, but in other FA-involved mistakes or uh, things like that in the past that it's come to nothing. Um, So I think it's too early to say that if they're not taking it seriously or not. Obviously, if there's discussions going ahead and toe-toe to come out 
happy with how discussions have gone. He would be incensed if it's gone nowhere and there's no developments. So the FA have to be taking it seriously to a degree because there seems to be an agreement between um, Christian and Tota that they were they, they were obviously good discussions and that they were, both sides feel like they've gained something or obviously not a gain advantage to the teams but it's it's been a progress of talks which has been the, obviously the main thing um, so on the face of it especially the new FA president it looks like Harry's is taking it seriously I mean other presidents in the past may not have done um, well, I'm going to refer to obviously the Max Mosley, Bernie Ecclestone period. If that happened, if last year happened under their reign, I don't expect anything to have happened. But yeah, new management has come in effectively and Mohammed being an ex-race driver himself, not afraid to shake the boat to get things fair um, and bring the sport back into what the fans want. So let's wait and see what, what we actually hear as a fisher outcome from the investigation is... Uh, my my feelings behind it yeah it, it's it's important to mention um in this context i suppose in a way the opinion of former fi presidents like max mosley and particularly bernie eccleson not to put words in their in their mouth no, and this is and this that. is not me saying that this is what they would say but i wouldn't be surprised if they if they'd taken the more harder or colder approach and saying well they lost that's it you know move on yeah. and, exactly. and and no more and just get on with it um you know, and and the backlash, I suppose, from the fan base has probably never been greater, owing to the rise in social media and you know the, the exposure to so much fan opinion that just didn't exist back when they were at the helm at Formula One and at the FIA. And you know, John Todd as well. Um, th- this wouldn't have been one of the ways he would have wanted to see out his time as president of the FIA. And, and overall, by and large, he did a relatively good job. Um, you know, very very intelligent man. I'm sure he would have loved to have you know, been a part of this process for change and to improve the structure of F1 going forward. But I'm pretty confident that he's left it in a man like Mohammed bin Salayim, who I'm sure his priority is to make sure that whatever happens, the structure of and integrity of Formula One and the FIA can be not necessarily maintained, but improved in the long run. Because I think that's what we all want as fans. I think one thing we should probably address in this regard, Lee, is the um the resurfacing of certain content on F1 on the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix you know stuff that had been around for a little while but for some reason it's resurfaced itself on social media again and the new hashtags if you like that are being uh introduced on social media one of which void lap 58 I, I don't know if it's me but there does seem to be quite a lot of fans whether they're in the Lewis Hamilton camp or whether they're just neutral in this argument, that are still under the impression that there is a possibility that the FIA, following this report, will decide to potentially void that lap and therefore overturning the result and granting Lewis Hamilton the world championship. Um, I I think probably we, as independent podcasters, might probably do ourselves and and some of our listeners a favour that may still be unsure of this and to briefly explain um, that situation and where things currently stand with that. Because we talked about this before and there's no existing regulation. And and I'm going back as far as when Mercedes had recently dropped their appeal 
to protest uh, the, the result and, and what happened at the uh, International Court of Appeal for the FIA. At the time, there is no existing regulation that even if Mercedes were found to have appealed and found that they were right, that the FIA could then change the result to void lap 58 and then grant Lewis Hamilton the World Championship. As far as I'm aware, that situation still exists. You know, so, um, I mean, what's, what's your thoughts on this? Because, uh, as I said before, I, I think it's important that whilst I understand and sympathise with fans that feel like Lewis was robbed, and I absolutely agree, I think he was, but we've got at some point we've kind of got to accept what's happened and just move past it to a point where yes, you know, you can still feel bitter about it, but the FIA are not going to change the result no matter what comes from this report. They are not going to suddenly say right. We've obviously made a mistake. Michael Massey did this, or he messed up. The rules weren't followed properly. Therefore, we have to take this action. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I really don't see that happening. As you said, there's no previous precedent. There's no capacity for it in the rules. Um, however, I wouldn't be surprised that one of the things Mercedes have been pushing for is there to be capacity in the, the rules going forward. Obviously, that won't fix next last year. Well, hopefully a situation like last year in Abu Dhabi doesn't repeat itself, but I'm sure that they would want to add, make sure that there is a capacity to strip a driver of the championship if there's been a mistake made by the FAA or a foul play by a team or in some or an other unknown situation that we can't think of right now. But I'm sure they'll be asking for that to be added um, or have a rule or amendment going forward. We'll have to wait and see if that does get suggested. But I'm sure that's one thing that the uh, Mercedes will, would have been pushing for. But I, I firmly believe that uh, Max won't lose his title. Max didn't do anything wrong. He drove superbly throughout the year. It was not his fault that Lewis effectively lost the title for the action of the FAA. That is not Max's fault. Um, as much as it's the you said the con- video content that came out of the last of the race it's still painful to watch mm. i don't want to go out of my way to rewatch it um but it's yeah it's not going to change the situation at all yeah i mean it was very frustrating i mean when i saw it um straight away i remember i think i can't remember who it was but um someone with a big social media account obviously because they were able to attract enough attention they um made the point that the, the implication was that uh, Jonathan Wheatley at Red Bull was giving radio instructions to Michael Massey, which then Michael Massey followed almost immediately, which in a way I can understand where the implication comes from. Um, but at the same time, you hear radio messages of instructions or advice given by people like Jonathan Wheatley or um, uh, or at Mercedes or other teams as well, you know, not to name names in particular, but obviously Jonathan's the one that's come up at Red Bull. And you don't hear them on the uh, broadcast. And, you know, Sky Sports, a lot of their pundits were being attacked over this, saying that they didn't mention this during the broadcast, etc. Well, because that's not the feed they were getting. This was from the F1 feed on YouTube. That's a completely different feed altogether. So in real time, they wouldn't have heard half of those messages, specifically that one. But it's not new information. And, you know, if it's found that Michael Massey acted on the advice of what Jonathan Wheatley said to him, then... That's that's on Michael Massey. You know, Jonathan Wheatley is just doing his job at Red Bull. As, you know, Total Wolf was trying to do the same thing for Mercedes when he was saying no safety car when Giovinazzi pulled up or no, or no safety car for this. Uh, you know, it, it's all the teams do it. I think yeah. at the end of the day, 
as harsh as it is, and I absolutely sympathise, and I really, really do, and I'm sorry to some hardcore Lewis Hamilton fans that might not be happy with what I'm saying here, and it may sound like I'm trying to say, look, just get over it. That's not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is that if you're hoping that the resolution of this is going to result in Lewis Hamilton being awarded the World Championship from last season, then it's... At this point, I would say there's no regulation for that to happen. And this is why the big mainstream media outlets or broadcasters are not talking about this at the moment either as a possibility because there's no existing precedent for it to happen. So I can't see how a scenario would come where the FIA would actually follow and act upon that. So anyway, look, I apologise if we haven't really made that clear, but you know, we've done our best to try and clear that up and move forward. Um, so I think we probably should at this point and talk about yep. something a bit more positive for 2022, Lee. Um, sprint races. So sprint races, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that the uh, the teams are all going to vote on whether or not to have more than three sprint races, having six sprint races for 2022. And they needed nine of the 10 teams, I believe, to a, a vote on this. We didn't get that. Um I don't know how close it was. They never really told us how many, but I, I just know we didn't get the vote that uh, F1 would have wanted to have extra sprint races. So we're just going to have the three and they are going to be at Imola, Austria and Brazil. They've also changed a few of the formatting elements of the sprint races, one of which is the point scoring positions. Before, we just had points for the top three finishes, obviously first getting third, second, two and third in one we are going to have eight point scoring finishes descending from eight points for the winner, seven, six, all the way down to eighth place, getting one in that particular order. And we're also going to get a statistical change where whoever gets pole on Friday will no longer be called the Speed King. Not that anyone really missed that. They will actually be granted with pole position. However, that will only be for the sprint race. They'll still have to win the sprint in order to be starting first in the main race. However, from a statistical perspective, that will be classed as pole position. The winner of the sprint will just start first in the main race. So to sum that all up, Lee, how do you feel about those changes? Because I think I'm happy that they're awarding more points for the sprint. And I also think that it kind of does make sense for whoever's first in qualifying to get pole position. Um but what are, you, what are your thoughts on all this? And also the venues that they've gone for for next season, because Brazil's a great choice from what we saw yeah. last season, but I'm not sure about Austria and Imola. I wouldn't say, if, also, there was one thing that was added. There was no increase to the budget either for the the additional races. So the three are within the existing um, budget. I just want to say, yeah, that's right. That's first. a good point to mention, because that was at the centre of the... The, the voting stalemate where uh, s- some teams, not going to name names because we don't know who, wanted extra allowances to be added to the budget cap to accommodate the extra sprint, sprint races, but we didn't get that. So we're just as we were with the current budget cap and the free sprint races. So yeah, thank you for pointing that out, Lee. That's, That's all right. Um, so yeah, go ahead and answer your question. I know we, when we discussed it in our sprint races cancelled episode, that one of the things all three of us wanted was to have more points. And I think Point, more points will make it a lot more exciting to watch. There's more in it. Spe- uh, obviously, eight points, right? There's three of them, but that's an additional um, 24 points, right? Compared to last year, well, there's three points. So there's an additional 15 points now for grabs if you win the the sprint race compared to last year. So there's more incentive to win, win the race and not just hold second. 
if you're sitting in second for oh like last year it was three points or two points oh it's one point I know one point can make a difference but eight points um right it's still one point difference for second place but it's a lot more incentive but even for the the lower end uh, the the midfield teams four or five points is still a, a nice uh, boost so it definitely gives more incentive to the drivers and the teams to actually not hold station and push for it, which will hopefully make it a more exciting sprint race. Um, so I'm happy with that. Um, regarding the the qualifying statistic, yeah, that that was really nasty. That the speaking, what the hell is that about? I mean, do we have statistic last year of speaking? No, no one really cares about that. Um, moving the the pole position to the Friday. Uh, it's, it's another good thing. Uh, it's obviously makes it a bit anomalous last year about who had pole position, um, but it's, it's, so, it's so much better. And it makes it instead of a sprint qualifying, which what the FAA was in the Formula One was trying to push last year. It's now more of a sprint race and not a sprint qualifying. Although the results obviously do impact the actual um, Grand Prix starting positions, but I'm. Uh, I know we've all three of us made it clear we're quite happy with the current Saturday and now the three-day Friday qualifying format, Q1, Q2, Q3, that works. So it puts more of an end result onto that session, which is another win, which in that sense, I think Formula One has listened to the fans regarding what they wanted a bit more out of the sprint racing. Um, Because obviously there were the common criticisms was the points and the actual... Um, who have pole position because uh, there's a lot of confusion around that so I think that's a positive thing that they paid attention but oh, the venues oh um, yeah I'm not so convinced on the, that um, aspect um, obviously Brazil we had a treat last year but that was mainly because Lewis was sent to the back which made it very exciting it probably wouldn't be that exciting again this year because that was obviously a different Hopefully those circumstances wouldn't repeat. But it still would be a good track for plenty of overtaking and that always is the case. But Austria and Imola, that's wouldn't be my top choices for um, a sprint race, especially Austria more than... Because it's so little corners and um, there's a lot of straights. It's very... Yeah, I, I really don't understand the logic behind those two. Um, and I'm not sure what more else I can add to that. It, I much would have preferred the Silverstone aspect to Monza, um, like we had last year. But yeah, it's. I do wonder if there have been some teams pushing for particular tracks or not. I don't know. Obviously, that's just guessing. But I'm really surprised by those choice of venues, apart from Brazil, obviously. Yeah, I mean, it could be. Um, now that I think about it, Austria doesn't sound too bad of an option because I'm just thinking mostly about the overtakes that we saw constantly going into turn four at the centre of the uh, the hard racing controversy that we saw, mostly between Norris and Perez and Charles Leclerc as well. Yeah. So we might get some action there. Imola seems a rather strange one purely and simply because even if the cars are much better at following each other as we hope they will be this year compared to previous seasons, it's a very narrow circuit, very old fashioned one as well. These yeah. cars are going to be bigger and it's not going to get any easier to overtake at a track like that. So I, I guess we have to give it a chance. 
F1 have made no secret in wanting to make this sprint series a success. They've wanted to extend upon it, perhaps against the best wishes of the fans. I'm still one of those fans that I just don't agree with the concept. I just don't think it adds... Well, I mean, it it does add value to the weekend because it's an extra race. It's extra stuff to talk about. I understand that. But um, I don't know. I, I, I just feel like it's something that's being forced upon us and it's not quite as exciting as an entity as F1 have made it out to be. I think, as you said, Lee, there have been isolated examples as to why some of the sprints have been made to look more exciting than they actually are. Brazil, the prime example, you know, you can celebrate it till the cows come home, but let's be honest, if it wasn't for the fact that Lewis started at the back of the grid with a rocket ship in his car, people wouldn't be going on about that race any more than they would have done about Monza and, and Silverstone. By comparison, where we had the other two races. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see how that goes. But I'm glad they've clarified a few things regarding the poll statistic. I think that's probably fair. Um, And also the points. I think you should award more points. Because I think that way you're going to get more excited sprint races. Because if you're not fast enough to get into the top three half the time, you might as well just stay where you are and protect your car and try and do the uh, proper racing in the main race. So we'll see if that has an effect. Hopefully it does. Because there's more to play for now this time. They've also made some changes with the FIA. Uh, the FIA have made changes regarding the minimum number of laps required to, uh, well, be completed to actually score points. And this was following the controversy of the Belgian Grand Prix earlier this season where we didn't actually have the minimum number of laps required uh, to complete a race. And then we ended up uh, having a race that, according to the FIA, and F1 was completed. I don't think the Belgian fans are still being given any sort of reimbursement for that, which is an absolute travesty. So, uh yeah, if anyone knows, do let us know if there is an update on that. But as far as I'm aware, I haven't heard anything yet on that one. It seems to have been forgotten about almost, uh, which is a shame. But they've made changes. And um, Lee, as you pointed out to me before we actually went on air, um, it's no points are going to be awarded unless we get two completed laps of the race with no safety car intervention whatsoever. So we have to have two actual green flag laps of race to score points, by which... There's only 25% of points on offer up until the point where they've completed 25% of the race. And then, of course, the next threshold is 25 to 50% of the race distance where you get half points and then 50 to 75% to get, I think, three quarter points. And then after 75, you get four points. So it's on the FIA's website if you want to have a look and how the new point system will be for those thresholds. But uh, I suppose it's another one of those boxes you can tick off to say yeah lessons learned from 2021 not the biggest issue but you know something that was a bit of a problem and, and at least they've addressed that which is good news oh yeah completely agree it's a um we just imagine what spa would have been like if we had two green laps in that that wet well yeah that would have been tasty two laps i much prefer to watch those two laps than <laughs> the safety car go around well, it literally would have been pure survival, wouldn't it? I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah. George Russell may have won the Grand Prix. We don't know. exactly. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. If we get into a situation like that again, um, it's good to know that we'll be armed and aware of what is required in order for a race to be classified as a race uh, rather than what we saw last season. Let's move on, of course, to the main point of this episode, Lee. We've been recording for nearly 20 minutes now, so we probably should get on with it. Um, I'm, I'm sure our followers would appreciate it. But this is a launch f1 special i was going to say launch livery purely because some of the teams have just put out a new livery on a show car um red bull and Haas. i'm looking at you but you know all jokes aside 
we've got new cars coming out. It's exciting. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing these new cars out on track, which we won't do for a couple of weeks yet because we're not going to see the first test in Barcelona, but we will do in Bahrain, hopefully. Um, and, and I want to start with Haas, if I may. Now, Lee, I, I'm, I'm popular opinion as it may sound, and I know it kind of goes against the core demographic that Haas was aimed at when it was introduced in Formula One, given its heritage and its background. But I didn't mind the Haas livery too much. I know there's the under the, the Russian undertones with the Eurocarly sponsor and the connection with Mazepin, but I, I don't I didn't mind seeing that on the car. I, I suppose the reason why a lot of people didn't like it was because it it's basically an American team name branding a Russian flag. So all the political reasons that come into that and the connotations that come from that obviously will uh, either deter or you know make you enjoy hinder or improve your perspective on how the car looks. This year, they've gone for something very, very similar in terms of a livery design. Probably because I've seen so much of it last year. I'm not really too fussed about it either. But it was the first opportunity to see a brand new 2022 car, albeit a computerized rendered version of one. What did you think of the new Haas? Did you like it? Did you think it's a a good looking livery to have on a new 2022 car? I mean, as a a livery, I much prefer the, the current white and well the russian um flag theme as you said or the red white and blue theme because obviously in, in as you said it's american team the, the u.s flag has red white and blue so that does work as well um but it's much better than the gray cars that um grosjean and um kevin magnuson used to drive there's a, a very dull car now so obviously last year had this as you said some delivery it's a uh, a much more lighter car and it's, it does bring lighter um, tones to the grid so I'm quite happy with, with predominantly white car with obviously the red and blue uh, markings um, so the, the colour scheme I'm quite happy with but I was surprised at how tight the rear of the car looks when you compare it to some of the other cars that we've seen um, which is intriguing because obviously it does Obviously, teams love to try and make that rear of the car as narrow and tight as possible. And either they're hiding something, or damn, that car um, is going to be fast if they've got their aerodynamics right. Um, yeah. Because it just looks so tight that some of the other teams that we're going to discuss in this episode haven't got it that tight. I mean, they, they could be completely fake because it's com- computer render and the actual car is a, as wide as a bus at the back, which I doubt, but... Uh, yeah, I was really surprised at that feature. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting with the Haas because I think there was more intrigue looking at this car to try and see what secrets we might learn about how the Ferrari is going yeah. to look, which, of course, we will see at the point of recording this, we'll see in a few days' time, and we'll talk about that in next in next week's episode. But um, we didn't really get a lot from this. There's been a lot of rumours regarding the new Ferrari that it's going to have a pull rod suspension, contrary to the push rod one, which is usually the norm. And I think we were hoping to see something like that on the Haas. But at the front of the car, they've gone with a pushrod suspension. And I personally feel that this is a bit of a bluff. Because one of the elements on the pushrod suspension, on the computerized render of the Haas, is not connected to the chassis properly. Yeah. So I feel like it's been put there to try and deceive us into thinking that the Haas is going to be pushrod and that to hide the fact that the Ferrari is actually going to be a pull rod. So I wouldn't be surprised if both of them end up being the pull rod. Now, let's not forget that whilst Haas and Ferrari can't work together 
on their cars. We have to stress, you know, that there is practically, uh, if you like, um, an imaginary fence between the two teams at the Marinello base, which of course has have a technical workshop there for their for their car and for their team that is headed up by Simone Resta and a lot of people seconded over from Ferrari as a result of the budget cap uh, would have had to find or, or redeploy them elsewhere. Haas are pretty much building their car from scratch. There are spec parts they can they can take from Ferrari, but the design is by and large their own. And, you know, minor stuff like the gearbox and the engine, obviously stuff they'll have to design to their car to accommodate that, which Ferrari can, of course, advise them on because they are the engine suppliers. That's pretty much the only similar hallmark they were expected to see between the two teams. That said, there are going to be elements about this car that may reveal certain secrets about Ferrari. So it's understandably, as you mentioned, why Huss on this computerized rendered version of their 2022 car, where they may be trying to keep their cars close to their chest. But um, as you said, it's a very tight, neat package. I, I guess in a way that kind of gives us hints as to how tightly compact this new Ferrari engine and gearbox is yeah. going to be. Of course, the big... Um, issue with that is is it going to be reliable is it going to be susceptible to heating issues and lack of cooling because if if it is it's going to cause cause a lot of problems for ferrari and its customers because of the engine freeze for the next few years so they have to make sure it's reliable um so overall it looks very clean and uh, elegant to a degree it it i mean it's practically a show car but Haas's version of a show car if you like um and yeah, I suppose we'll just have to look forward to seeing how it's going to look out on tracking, testing, and other what other pieces that we're expecting from them. Oh yeah, uh, de- definitely uh, looking for- forward to that aspect of seeing what that car actually can deliver and see if it can get Hass off the uh, the back of the grid. Yeah, and and it's a big year for them in that regard because of what they've had to sacrifice to get to this point, pretty much throwing away 2021 to make this possible. Um, and, and an ongoing theme with this episode that I'm going to ask you, Lee, is if we can pinpoint one particular weakness in each team that needs to be improved to have a better 2022, what that would be. So I'm going to start you off with Haas in that regard. If, if there is one weakness that Haas needs to address, what do you think that would be? Apart from being a faster car. Well, yeah, I mean, we could say it could be more aerodynamically sound as, uh, compared to these previous years, but then that's kind of a given for every yeah. team. But um, yeah, um, what what other one would you feel that needs um, to be addressed for them? For for them, I would say it's more of a operational thing of how they manage the car and development throughout the season. Um, you have other teams on the grid that are relentless with their development. Um. But that's not something that Hass has shown in the past that it's relentless or even mediocre. It generally doesn't do much of a development. They put the card, they make sure it works, and then they already move on to next year, which well, it does help if you especially have a big wall change like we've had. But you can carry over parts. Uh, so I would expect as the rules are going to be stable for the next few years that Hass should really focus on their the, the development rate of, for their car. Yeah, it's a good point. I can agree with that one. I think they're um, they have to improve their development capacity of this car. Yeah, uh, it has to justify writing off twenty twenty one for a start. You know that they pretty much spent the year with a car that they couldn't really add any parts to. Pretty much the homologated pieces that they weren't able to add in twenty twenty went on to the twenty twenty one car, and that was it. And they had two young drivers in Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin that pretty much had to drive from a base car for the whole season and learn their way and it's going to be critical for Haas to try and see if they can break into that midfield or at the very least be much more competitive relative to where they were last season so you know there's a lot riding on this for them 
I hope for their sake that the development capacity is going to be good because they're going to have to produce a car that's going to have to improve throughout the year. I think that's just going to have to be something for everybody, but for Haas in particular, that's going to be critical because in the years gone by, Haas have always had a tendency to start relatively well, but then slowly fade down the pecking order because of the lack of development capacity in their previous cars. So with the personnel that they have this year, seconded over from Ferrari, like Simone Resta, the new technical director there, it's going to be critical that they can create something that they can develop and work on. Because I think for all the teams in 2022, even if they're not at the front in 2022, given what we've been hearing, the pecking order should close up or it should be a, there should be a lot less of a variance in performance or it should be a tighter uh, pecking order, if you like, you know, a, a less of a range in performance. That's going to come in years well, to come. I was going to say, also you think of a big rule change that we, we're going through. The rate of development throughout the year as the teams understand the performance of the car. I mean, there'll be some massive gains this year compared to how the cars will be in a few years' time. They won't have that same rate of gains. So it's development is a key thing for this year. Yeah, a- absolutely right. And I think for us, that's going to be more important than most teams. So we'll have to see what they do. And uh, hopefully, of course, their drivers can improve in, in you know, incline with that. So uh, let's see how they get on. Next, we've got the... Uh, defending drivers champions car Max Verstappen the Red Bull RB18 now just a quick footnote for those of you that will be very eagle-eyed and asking well why is this not called the Red Bull RB17 purely and simply because normally Red Bull operate by the number car that they have um, that since they've existed into the sport so the first one was the RB1 this would be their 18th season so the RB18 last season because of the rules being homologated from 2020 to 2021, they effectively called their car the RB16B rather than a brand new RB17. So uh, that's kind of the logic for it. So there won't be any RB17, unfortunately, the fabled missing Red Bull, if you like. But um, I think a lot of us were kind of hoping that Red Bull wouldn't do what they did. Unfortunately, they ended up doing it anyway. And and that is a livery launch or a, a sponsor launch, if you like, rather than an actual brand new car. Red Bull, during their launch, were advertising it as a brand new car, but effectively what they did was roll out a show car, paint it in the new Red Bull livery, and basically promote their new title sponsors, Oracle, in a which they've signed a five-year deal worth up to $500 million in sponsorship. So a huge amount of money, but um, a little bit disappointing that we didn't really get to see a proper Red Bull car at this point in time. Um, what are your thoughts on it, Lee? Yeah, obviously I wasn't expecting Red Bull to make things obvious regarding the development of the car and go, obviously provide a rotation and go, this is what we're working on. No, I don't spend anything like that. But yeah, the show car is a bit disappointing. Obviously, Red Bull fans really want to see the car and what um, obviously their genius agent has been up to, what, what's gone on it. And obviously now we have to wait a bit more to see what um, actually does come on. Obviously, as you said, we don't see the first test, so it's going to be even more waiting um, but yeah, it's I, I wasn't surprised, but yeah, just to call it what it is and call it a livery launch and not just a look at a new car. That's the only slightly annoying thing for me. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, there's not really much else to add to that. Well, no, it's clever marketing from Red Bull. Um, a little bit cynical, and I wasn't really happy yeah. about it, but then I wasn't surprised that they were going to do that. I wasn't expecting no, I wasn't them to surprised. show their car. Um, but they allowed a lot of people on their streams to, you know, sort of co-host the launch, if you like, to put it on their streams. And that. so there was plenty of exposure. Very, very clever stuff from Red Bull. 
that um, as soon as they were showing the car, and I thought, yeah, that that's not a Red Bull, not at all. Um, on the on a side note, I suppose it is quite refreshing to see the number one back on the Formula One grid again. Now, in recent years, other than a, I think a one-off occasion a few years ago at Abu Dhabi, uh, when Lewis Hamilton had it that one time for Mercedes, this would be the first time we've seen a number one on the F1 grid since Sebastian Vettel was uh, the world champion in 2014, running it for that season. So that's always a nice touch, I suppose. And uh, they asked Max Verstappen why he's running number one instead of 33, and he just said, just looks better. And, um, I mean, I kind of agree in a way. Nothing against the number 33, but if I'm the world champion and I have the uh, opportunity to run number one on the car, I'm certainly going to enjoy it because you don't know if it's going to happen again or how long it will be. You know, we can't all be Lewis Hamilton and win world championship after world championship after world championship. So, um, yeah, it'll be a nice touch to see that on the grid again. With Red Bull, yeah. though, speaking... No, I don't want to oh, add on sorry, that, Adam. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Get ahead of myself there. <laughs> no, no, it's just, uh, obviously, if people aren't aware, that is the world champion's prerogative to choose number one on their car or have their assi- their chosen number. So, I obviously, don't want to make that clear if anyone, anyone is wondering why that is. Yeah, very, very true. We, we often forget that we get a lot of new F1 fans all the time. And uh, yeah, that is the reason um, all the drivers are allowed to choose their numbers from the start of their F1 careers and they have to hold on to that. But the only time they can change their number is if they are world champions. So they have the opportunity to drive number one, although it's not mandatory, as we've seen from Lewis Hamilton running the number 44 for many years whilst he's been world champion. So uh, yeah, on the subject of Red Bull, I think it's not easy for us to pinpoint one thing in particular that Red Bull have been very weak at that they probably need to improve on. Is there one in, in that comes to mind that you think probably should be addressed for them and perhaps with these new regulations that might be a bit easier for them to address than in previous years? Um, I mean, operationally, Red Bull is probably one of the, the best teams you could get on the grid operationally. Um they're, 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 if they're not the best, they're definitely up there. And obviously, the, you really can't point or, uh, complain about the quality of the drivers. Yeah, this is probably going to be more of a Courtney he's going to be a fan of. Um, but obviously, Courtney's not here. Um, I would say, as, not that Red Bull lack their PR, is come across is to be a bit more not polite because they're not rude. I'm just trying to express it, not to be so obtrusive in regards in when the talking into teams or being so antagonistic potentially in, in a situation. I, um, I'm not sure I'm expressing myself properly here, Adam. So please um, feel free if you think of if, uh, a better way of ex- explaining what um, I know, but I know Courtney is very anti Christian Horner and how, and how he manages the team, but it's just how that communication, I think it's really needs to be, is an area that they could probably improve on if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I sort of understand what you mean. I, c- I can understand that. I, again, I totally get it. I, I get why, from from a British perspective and the British media perspective, I can understand why a lot of what Christian Horner and Dr. Helmut Marco says can be seen as antagonistic and um, provoking uh, these kind of confrontations and, you know, the, this, uh, how can I put it, the bad blood in this world championship. I mean, everybody has their role to play. Yeah. 
And I think we kind of also have to accept that it's reported differently around the world. You know, perhaps we're exposed to more of these tongue in cheek statements or these less savory statements that we hear from the Red Bull camp um, compared to other countries that may hear the opposite side and may only hear good things about Red Bull or may only hear that Mercedes are the antagonist or somewhere else, etc, etc. But I do understand that I think following what happened at the British Grand Prix, particularly last season, I think this is kind of where it mostly sprung into life, if you like, all of this bad blood in this World Championship. Um, For whatever reason, it's up to you guys listening to decide that. But um, I can understand that perspective. I think for me, um, looking at Red Bull as a whole, I agree. Operationally wise, they're one of the best outfits out there. Um, They have been for some times and and it's paramount in their success, you know, as it would be for any Formula One team. I think you have to have world running operations on a day-to-day yeah. basis to produce what Red Bull have produced since they've been in Formula One. One thing I would, I do feel that they probably need to improve on is the um, compliancy of their car. I think in, a f- in the last season, whilst their car was very, very good, and you could argue was probably the best overall package if you take the engines out of them, but I think one thing that Red Bull struggled to do at certain points last season when they had the issues with the rear wing, particularly on Verstappen's car, where they kept having to change it because they just weren't have they were having issues with the speed of it or the durability of it was an issue and they keep having to change it and the DRS flap issues. Um it is something that they did struggle with last year. And I think Adrian New is quite famous for getting these new regulation changes very, very right. Um, he's done it so many times throughout his career, perhaps the exception of 2009, although it did take a bit of time and then eventually it caught up. But, um, you know, he was absolutely on it and he may well be on it again this year. But I think what's important for Red Bull to get right is the car's compliancy for both of its drivers. I think with Max Verstappen, we had a driver that is so good at being able to drive the car to its limits, no matter what car he's in. It kind of overshadowed um, or masked, if you like, certain faults with the car that we only really saw with the number two driver. People like Pierre Gasly, Ricardo to a degree in his latter days at Red Bull. Um, you know, Alex Albon and and Sergio Perez this season. You know, I think it was a great example last season with Sergio Perez that whilst we expected him to have a bit of a difficult period getting used to the car, he was never really at a point where he was driving to the absolute limit that we expected from Sergio, perhaps with the exception of one or two races like Baku and, and France. So Red Bull do need to produce a car that both their drivers can get on top of. And hopefully for their sake this season, this will present the perfect opportunity because in my opinion, the reason why they lost the Constructors' Championship is because their number two driver wasn't doing the job for them that ultimately Valtteri Bottas did for Mercedes as a number two. That was the difference, ultimately. So that I think if I'm going to look at a weakness for Red Bull that they need to address, that's probably the one where both their drivers can get the most out of the car rather than just Max Verstappen, who can pretty much drive practically anything fast. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if there was anything you wanted to add on that one. No, no, I completely agree with that point. Uh, that, that point makes uh, a lot of sense. Awesome. Right, so, and guys, as we're going along with this, let us know what you think of the new cars, what's your favourite one so far, and if there are any inherent weaknesses that you think need to be addressed with each of the teams that we go through. And, of course, we will be going through the remaining teams in next week's podcast as well. And, uh, yeah, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I'll leave a card up here. For those of you that were curious about our 2022 predictions episode and you haven't seen it, I'll leave a card up if you're listening on YouTube. You can check that out. That is live on the channel and on all podcasting platforms as well. So have a look if you're interested to see what we're predicting for 2022 
Now, let's move on to Aston Martin. And uh, I think it goes without saying, Lee, this is one hell of a beautiful-looking car. Last season, the Aston Martin, minus the pink stripe, which I think we kind of got used to over time because of its partnership with BWT. No disrespect to those guys. Of course, it is what, you know, it's their company. They do what they want with it. But I've got to say, now that BWT has moved on with Alpine and Aston Martin are just primarily with uh, Cognizant and Aramco and they're able to run their own colours, this is absolutely phenomenal how it looks. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see the cars in a real in one of the screen slots below. And I think you'll agree how good this... I mean, is it fair to say that this is probably the, the best-looking car of the bunch so far, Lee, and perhaps the best-looking car that we'll see for 2022? Oh, oh, so far, yes, I would definitely agree. I think this is the best-looking car so far. Um, it, yeah, it's, it just looks really nice from the front and the sides. Maybe not so much from the top. You're looking down on it because it's not flattering how wide it is. Um, compared to the Haas, especially. But oh, just looking at the car, it's such a, yeah, just the way the colour and the contour, yeah, it's such a good scheme. I love it. Yeah, I really hope it's fast as well. I think the one disappointing thing with Aston Martin last season in particular was that it was a beautiful car, but it just wasn't quick um, at most places. So I hope that trend changes. I mean, it's the first proper F1 2022 car that we've seen so far. Um, and... I've got to say, there's a lot of optimism in the Aston Martin camp. You know, there's a lot of great people there. You know, Andy Green has spoken very highly of the work that they've been able to do on this car. We should also mention that this is kind of the first car in a few years that whilst Aston Martin are using a lot of the rear components of the Mercedes, like the power unit, the engine and the rear suspension, obviously they would do. Um, this is a purely an Aston Martin car. This isn't a concept driven by Mercedes, as they famously copied the what was it the uh, W11 from 29 uh, W10 sorry from 2019 into 2020, and uh, they were they were found out in 2021 because of course the homologation of the rules meant that they were quite limited in what they could do with the car that they weren't planning to run longer than a year. So it's kind of an all new change for Aston Martin, their first real proper challenger, the AMR22, and uh, yeah, as I said, if it's as quick as it as you know, if it's quick, as good as it looks, then it's certainly going to be a very, very good car. I'm quite intrigued by the radiator outlets on the on the bodywork. Those are quite cool. So those are going to be used primarily to let out a lot of the hot air, help with the cooling. I don't imagine it's going to affect the drag too much, if at all, because otherwise it wouldn't be there. Um, they find another way to sort of use that. So that's kind of a good thing. And I suppose with Mercedes having the cooling issues that they had last year with the engine, it might be a, a, you know, it might be something that we see on the Mercedes W13 when that, you know, breaks cover next season. So, Lee, looking at the Aston Martin and how stunning it looks and how quick we hope it will be, is there one particular weakness that you could say that they need to address for this season going forward? Um, I would have said for them, uh, it's more about the operational side um, for them. Obviously, uh, as a a team right it's the different different name different budget now different management but in the past the the bulk of the engineers have experience of having a regular update plan um they can bring substantial updates to the car obviously this this is the first car that they've actually had a, a proper good budget compared to the racing point days um or even aston one day where obviously that was a carryover from racing point so they get the, the full 
Right, obviously, I don't know how much they've spent on the car, but it's a lot more than they probably had in the past. That, that I'm for sure. Um, but it's more the operational, obviously, see the pit stops, better strategy calls. How they handle the drivers, obviously, uh, is a key thing. We both, we've both made it clear that we want Sebastian to help increase his recovery. Obviously, he's back now after he's come back from Ferrari, so hopefully that's a good sign going forward. Sebastian with a lot of hair again. That's He's back to his youth. Um, and But it's obviously the stroll aspect with Lance and Lawrence and how they handled that. And if we've got a resurgent Sebastian, uh, it's, it's all down to operational strategy. It's That's really where they, I want to see their improvement. Yeah, I think that's a really good one. And, and I agree, absolutely. I think what's going to be key for Aston Martin this season is can they separate the F1 operations from the business operations, i.e., Will they allow someone like Mike Crack, who's the new team principal there, to run the team in the image that he wants to run it without any intervention from Lawrence Stroll? Which I don't think what Otmar Zafner really got in that team. And ultimately, perhaps why it didn't work out, there was too much of a clash there. Perhaps Martin Whitmarsh, the new CEO, is going to be key in this triage, if you like. You know, you've got, you know, Lawrence Stroll, obviously he wants to be very involved. He's very vocal about the operations, you know, it's going to be so hard for Aston Martin to thrive if he is constantly getting involved in certain situations where perhaps Martin would be better off as a mediator and you've got Mike Crack trying to run the operations of the Formula One team. Now, Mike Crack, from the testaments of his former colleagues at BMW, you know, he's had so many glowing rec- uh, recommendations from people that he's worked with. They've said he's very no-nonsense, straight-talking, not really interested in politics at all, although I'm not sure why he's involved in Formula 1 if he's not interested in the politics of motorsport. Um, but I digress. Um, there's he, And he does like to take responsibility for those working under him, those that he does delegate his tasks to. In, in a way, I suppose it's kind of how you could look at someone like uh, Andreas Settle at McLaren, I think is a great example to compare to. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on Mike to kind of get that right. He's got two drivers at the moment where more needs to be delivered from them this year. More's going to be expected of them. Um, last year, you know, I think in a way they kind of had a bit of a buffer owing to the fact that the situations with the car, I don't think they're going to get that luxury this season. Sebastian Vettel, by his own admission, was good in part, but overall made quite a lot of, a lot of mistakes. But it did seem like he was getting back to some level of performance that he would have been satisfied with. Hopefully, for his sake, his you know performances improve as much as his hairline has over the last year. Um, I think that's the biggest comeback we've seen yeah. so far in Formula One in the last few years. So the great stuff, you know, Seb looks great. Really nice, youthful look. Hopefully, we get a bit the younger Seb again. Um, and then, of course, on the other side of the garage, we've got Lance Stroll, who is an okay driver. But I think he needs to prove that he's much more of a solid, reliable, good driver than just three or four races a season. I think that's got to be the next step forward for him. He needs to be regularly involved rather than just a peak performance every so often. So there's a lot there. Um, I, I do feel that Aston Martin might struggle with the first thing to separate the business and the the F1 team in that regard because of Lawrence Stroll's influence on the team and how involved he can be. But if they can get it right and the car is equally as quick as it and, and as impressive as it looks, then I think we could see a good year for Aston Martin. I'm still going to hold on to the fact that I feel like that they will be a better team in 2023 and more of a force to be reckoned with. But um, it certainly looks like a step in the right direction. But we'll just have to wait and see how that sort of transpires on the track, which, of course, they were the first team to do their shakedown 
at Silverstone and uh, it looked absolutely phenomenal in real life as it did in the uh, in the in the photos as well so uh encouraging stuff for Aston Martin so let's move on to Alpha Tauri sorry I'm just flicking through my pages I've got loads of notes on this um Alpha Tauri I want to do them first if I may instead of and we'll do McLaren at the end the new AT03 which was unveiled to uh, today or was it today this morning Oh, no, no, it was the 14th, sorry. Yeah, yesterday. 14th, yes. Do apologise. Yeah, so it was unveiled yesterday. And, um, yeah, it's a nice-looking car. Um, I think I preferred uh, other renditions of the Alpha Tauri in previous years' delivery, but it still looks good. Solid-looking car. Um, Not a lot to say on this one. I think there's stuff that can be learned about how the real Red Bull RB18 is going to look. We're not really going to dive into that too much, but... um, Overall, what do you think of the car lead? Do you like it? Is, does it look good? I mean, it does. It does look good. Um, but I mean, yeah, I agree. The livery is not one that probably the best of recent times either. Um, but see, you said it gives in, may give indicates the Red Bull, but obviously their design is now completely independent. They don't buy the parts from Red Bull like they used to. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm still, as I said in previous episodes, still not convinced by where AlphaTauri maybe this year. Um, and for me, out of the the five we're discussing, it's probably prettier than the Red Bull, but that's about it. <laughs> um, yeah, just that's yeah. just because we haven't seen much of the Red Bull. Um, so yeah, it's a I'm not sure what to take away from the car review obviously it's not for me it's not as exciting as the Aston Martin um I don't think any of the other cars are exciting as the Aston Martin but yeah it's just a some more of a wait and see for me on that one yeah and I absolutely agree I think we're going to learn more about these cars when we see them you know in in the flesh I suppose a bit more yeah um as I said I think the action shots of the Alpha Tariots at Imola were quite nice um and it kind of brought the car to life a little bit um there's a lot of good things going for Alvatari. The last few years, they've made quite good progress, um, despite perhaps falling short of the expectations of Fran Tost in recent years. Um, I suppose the one thing I would say about Alvatari that they need to address is they probably need to do a better job of maximising its potential. Um, there's been too much underperforming in recent years from them, not just the teams on the car, but the drivers as a collective, I suppose. Um, I think it was Ed Straw... Uh, from the race who summed it up perfectly when he described them as the underachieving overachievers in that regard like this is a team last season where you know they were talked about in the same breadth in performance wise as the likes of Ferrari and McLaren now this is the former Minardi team once upon a time you know and Lee that will struck a chord with you to think that this is a side that this is the team that you know 15 years ago or 20 years ago would be seen as a laughing stock where Ferrari and McLaren were lapping them for fun like four or five times a race. And now they're in a in a position where they are competing with them performance-wise on a regular basis as they were in 2021 and 2020. But they weren't really able to capitalise that on enough. And, uh, you know, it, owing to situations where the car was a pro- had problems with the car reliability or um, there were strategy calls that were a bit of a mess or Gasly breaks the front wing off or Sonoda spins it and breaks the gearbox in the back of a wall in qualifying. Despite the fact that AlphaTauri seems to have got a good balance now with what they've done themselves and what Red Bull are providing for them, they need to put that more on the... Ch- they need to get the results that come with that. 
Um, at times, they arguably had the third fastest car at a few occasions last season, but they ended up f- finishing behind Alpine and sixth in the Constructors' Championship. It just doesn't add up. So for them, I think they need to maximise the potential that their car is. They've they've always produced a decent car, and they had a very good one last year. They just need to be able to deliver with it. Where other t- like you know Alpine didn't have a good a car as AlphaTauri had, but they certainly delivered on what they had a lot better than what AlphaTauri did last season. Oh yeah, completely agree there. Is there anything you wanted to add on AlphaTauri? Yeah. Like yeah. perhaps something a bit positive because I've kind of uh, knocked them down um, a bit. Unfortunately, my air would be. I completely agree with what you're saying, but for me, it's more about Yuki. It's not positive. Is it's it's all about Yuki. The um, need to improve. Obviously, he's a driver, but he's still part of the team. Um, it's just Yuki needs to bring bring up his performances. Um, yeah, it's all about Yuki. He, he needs to bring solid results and not make silly mistakes. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I think it's a big year for Gasly as well. So hopefully for Alvatari's sake, they can make the most of that as well. Because I think there's, you know, Sonoda does need a better season. Hopefully he does perform better, but we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, he definitely has to cut those mistakes out. And I think Alvatari have to manage that situation a bit better as well. Um, let's move on to the final car, the McLaren MCL 36. And um, I'm going to be very unpopularly. I, I think this is probably the worst looking car I've seen so far. I really do not like this livery. Um, I, I don't know if you're surprised. I know we talked about this, Lee. I mean, uh, before I, you know, dig myself an even bigger hole um, amongst the McLaren fan base. Um, wh- what do you think of this car? Do you like the livery? I admit, I do like the livery. I don't think it's as good as the Aston Martin, but I do like it. Um, I know when the car came out, we did um, speak at the, at the, at the time. Um, I do prefer the darker blue of the last few seasons compared to that light blue. Um, and it's more, I think the theme of this livery is more inspired on the, obviously, the one-off golf livery we had at Monaco, I believe, last year, which was also a very lovely uh, uh, livery. So they've taken the inspiration and they've reworked it. Um, I'm not a fan of that light blue, but I still like the car and how it looks and the, the rest of the livery. Um so yeah, I'm gonna have to disagree on you, with you on that one. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I mean, I think there's like three or four different liveries going on in there, and they've just tried to put them all together to create one super livery. I, I just feel like there's too much going on. Perhaps, perhaps it's my taste. I just prefer something a bit more simplistic. But uh, I just feel like there's a lot going on, and none of it's really that great to look at. You to prefer be something a bit red. Yeah, perhaps my biases are showing. I mean, if Ferrari produced a car like that, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see. It might look better in red. But I, I, I was looking at the um, Indy car, like the McLaren Shadow Indy car that Pato Ward's going to be driving. Now that looks really good. Just the yeah. orange and the black. I, I like that. I mean, the duck egg blue is nice. And McLaren have obviously tried to work that in because of how popular it proved to be at Monaco. And that was a beautiful looking car. But um, I feel like they've just done a bit too much this year they've tried to incorporate McLaren shadow the McLaren heritage with the papaya orange and the duck egg blue into some sort of super livery it just doesn't work for me you know each to their own but it just doesn't really work for me unfortunately um I I just hope the car's fast you know doesn't matter how it looks if it's fast who cares how it looks yep pretty much um I do want to agree on the IndyCar I know this is a Formula One channel but yeah I agree (laughs) that IndyCar looked really nice because obviously they had a multi-car launch just to add that to obviously the People watching, they revealed all their cars at the same time for all their different series. But obviously, sponsors are different for different sports series, and obviously, sponsors have, have their own 
requests on colouring and branding, which obviously and then impacts the colours that they they use. Um, but uh, as an event, that was probably the most enjoyable event to watch because just the different cars. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at the yeah, same time. absolutely. I mean, we saw the Extreme E McLaren car as well, and I think the livery kind of works on the Extreme E car because it kind of goes with the concept of that controlled chaos, I suppose, of extreme yeah. racing that we saw uh, last year and obviously we'll see in the future. But I just think for Formula One, I, I don't know, it just doesn't really sit with me from McLaren. But maybe it's because, you know, going through the years, I've seen McLaren take different shapes and forms. And um, this is probably the most radical of those that I've seen in quite yeah. some time with McLaren. And some liveries of theirs have worked. Some of them, 2014 in particular, and perhaps 2015 to a degree, the original one, not really a winner for me. And uh, But we'll see. You know, as I said, the FIA have talked of our team and F one of our teams to have like a testing livery for the first test, and then the real livery in the second one. So maybe, maybe this is the pre-test livery, and maybe we'll see a new one. Um, for, for you know, maybe that's my thoughts on it. But we'll just have to wait and see, or maybe I'm completely wrong, and this is what they're yeah. going to be running for this season. We'll see. Um, but McLaren, of course, last few years have been good. Have been in the top four in the constructors' championship the last few years at least. Um, McLaren for me. I think if there's one particular area that I think that they need to improve on that's considered a bit of a weakness is to try and find a better balance between the high speed and low speed performance of their car. Now, McLaren historically have been operating with a wind tunnel and a simulator where it just isn't where it needs to be in order to compete with the top teams like Red Bull, McLaren, uh, Red Bull Mercedes and Ferrari, of course, now um, after their recent upgrades. And it explains why this McLaren is spending a lot of money trying to upgrade it. So they are kind of on the back foot already with this um, because, you know, we're wary of the infrastructure that's hindering them and affecting them. But what we saw from their car last season in particular is that, and I compare them to Ferrari in this regard, I think it's a good example to have, but what we saw over the course of the season that Ferrari produced an aero package which was vastly superior what McLaren had and McLaren had a vastly superior engine to Ferrari they had the championship winning engine in the Mercedes um, and as a, as a result we saw McLaren have such high peaks in performance at certain venues where we saw high speed like Monza uh, Austria for example you know two isolated examples where McLaren were excellent and, and of course where they won they broke their wind drought um, that was going on for eight or nine years at the Italian Grand Prix but at the lower speed circuits that's where they really, really struggled to perform. And for me, I think McLaren's biggest task for this season, despite the setbacks that they'll have in what's available to them resource-wise, they need to find a better balance between the high speed and low speed. If they can do that, then there's absolutely every chance that they could be in the upper echelons of the F1 hierarchy for this season. So uh, that's kind of my thoughts on this. Um, I'm not too focused on the drivers too much. I think they both in their own minds do what they've got to do. But um, to give them the best chance, I think McLaren need to find a better balance in the high speed and low speed corners so that their peaks aren't just, you know, every every time they go to a high speed circuit and that they're better at the, at the lower speed circuits, for example. Yeah, I completely agree with those comments, Adam. But uh, for me, I think they need to improve on their wind sensitivity. They the, Last year's McLaren was really susceptible to gusts of wind. Um, so, yeah, that's something you don't want a car that, it's basically a big kite. I know they obviously they, there's a lot of aero and the air flowing over the car, but you don't want to be blown around. Um, and they really need to, uh, area to improve on is effectively their big, fast kite. Um, don't want that. So that's obviously been at the same time as you said, is the, the balance and 
the weight, but yeah, the sensitivity is there for me to improve. Um, but I do want to add on with this McLaren is I believe it's they they've got um, is it pull rod um, suspension they have at the the front of the car. Yeah, they've got yeah. they've gone pull rod at the front and uh, push rod at the back. Push rod at the back. So uh, you know that'll be interesting. But I mean, it's one of those where I'm kind of reserving judgment and all of that until oh. we start seeing them and testing because you know maybe McLaren are being genuine or maybe they're just you know. Pulling the rug from yeah. underneath us, but it's still intriguing as a because it's against the normal previous years. So mm. it's the the first sign of some potential ingenuity we've seen from the teams yet. So I just just wanted to highlight that. But yeah, for those of you that aren't sure what we mean by pull and push rod suspension, it's basically the sort of the angle in which the suspension um, sort of connects with the tires to the chassis of the car. Whereas obviously a push one makes it look like the um, the suspension is coming down and pushing the tyres out and the pull rod is where it's coming um, sort of down from the top the top of the tyres down into the chassis like that um, so that's kind of a brief understanding of it but I mean they obviously have their differences in aerodynamic efficiency depending on how you want to channel the airflow on the cars but um, yeah push rod is normally the go-to over the last well for some time actually I think it was Ferrari in 2014 that went for the pull rod and then they decided to change it because it wasn't working because um, that was a dreadful car by comparison. That was the car that famously Fernando Alonso said had oversteer and understeer at the same time, um, the F14T. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see how that goes. But, yeah, it's quite interesting, Lee. A lot of teams, McLaren, Haas, uh, well, not so much Haas at this point in time. We'll have to wait and see. Um, you know, and maybe Ferrari as well might be going Paul Rod and maybe Red Bull, I heard. But we'll have to wait and see on that one as well. Um, is there any final thoughts, Lee, before you want to wrap this episode up anything we haven't mentioned already no i'm just uh i want to add that i'm thoroughly enjoying the cars and i just can't wait to actually see them on track because i'm just ready to get stuck into the this year's season already <laughs> yeah absolutely agree with you mate absolutely agree. i can't wait to see the rest of them and for the season to get underway but that's pretty much all we have time for for the first part of the launch special for f1 2022 we're going to be doing the second half of this next week where we'll be reviewing the new Williams which broke cover today which we'll talk about a bit more a bit more detail next week apologies for that and um oh you know my language there apologies for slip of the tongue and uh, we'll talk about the Ferrari Mercedes Alpine and the Alfa Romeo as well for those of you watching this on YouTube if you enjoyed the episode consider giving us a like and subscribe to the channel if you're interested and if you are listening on your favorite podcasting platform do also give us a like and follow us and if you feel we're worthy of a five-star review please feel free to give us some and if not then uh, yeah let us know what we can do to improve the show but until next time guys thanks for tuning in we've been dnf1 and we will see you in the next episode of the dnf1 f1 podcast take care goodbye Podcast Network.